again, perhaps thinking about younger readers of, of, of poetry and, and how how do we persuade younger people with all the exciting things that they could be doing with their, their time? And I don't think I was reading Shelley or, or Keats when I was um, 16, 17, 18. Um, I think Keats has just been uh, taken off the GCSE curriculum. And uh, is there a way in which Shelley and Keats and Wordsworth and, have become part of the problem that a whole host of dead white men writing about uh, lyric po- poems about nightingales and um why are we having to put up with <laughs> with all of this stuff as you say it's, it's sort of interesting to think of Shelley sort of feeling hampered is there a way in which the romantics particularly sort of feel ha- hampering to the next generations of, of poets coming, yes. but also just the ge- next generation of readers oh god I've got to put up with Grecian urns what's, what's <laughs> what what has the intellectual him to intellectual beauty got to say to me yes I think that's a really good question, and I think it's paradoxical because I think, in a way, I think that anything that becomes compulsory learning and becomes a form of rote learning becomes inert and becomes one of those poisonous names. And suddenly I was put off poetry at school. I mean, I hated it. You know, it's just the kind of tedious set of in a form of indirect speech which you're <laughs> supposed to point out the kind of you know dreary checklist of things going on in it and I had absolutely no sympathy for it I think that it helps to think about poetry biograph- biographically because I think it helps it helps in our reading of dead poets but dead poets also help us if we can get to the point of recognising that they they see the poems as from the point of view of the writing of them rather than the point of view of the reading of them. And then from the point of view of the writing of them, not only technically, but being written by people in situations, situated people who are struggling with being alive, which we all are. For people who love the romantics and who get the romantics and have charismatic teachers at the right age, the romantics are a kind of siren call. Their siren call is don't be obedient. Don't be a passive, you know, consumer of the whatever it is you're supposed to be, curriculum of duties or knowledge or whatever. Go and beat a path for yourself. The world is huge and beautiful and you can find a way in it. And actually, they did do it first and in many ways better than many other poets. I mean, that was the strength of them as a movement. But it's very hard to access that that life in their language, in a way. It's very hard to access them, actually, oddly. And the more of a cliche, you know, I wondered lonely is, Mm -hmm. for example, actually the worse our access is because they've become the departed dead. They've become poison names rather than part of a kind of, you know, living chain of... um, In the way that, you know, people who are dead but are proponents of music that people still listen to, I don't know, like, I don't know, even like classic rock and roll, I don't know, whatever, um, or, you know, bands from 20 years ago, but actually, you know, everyone is incredibly eclectic now and everyone listens to everything and, you know... So those people might be dead, but they're still like 
doing, their work is still doing. How do we live? We're living. What are we doing? You know, here we are. I, a little bit of me thinks that the reason we can do that with music is because it's not on the national curriculum, I mean, in schools, mm. and that's a terrible thing to say. But I really do, you know, because the one thing that is never taught is the two things that are never taught in studying at school, because they can't be, are one, pleasure, <laughs> taking pleasure in this, enjoying the sound of the language, tearing out the lines that you love and kind of gloss, forgetting the ones that don't do it for you or don't do it for you today or don't do it for you yet. And being personal, you know, seizing it and taking it back to your personal lair, which we all have. We all have our mental cave where we're inventing ourselves and reinventing ourselves. Um, we furnish it with the stuff that really speaks to us. And um, objects of study very rarely get taken into that cave. And, you know, and mm. I wish that they would. I think I was telling you before we started recording that, you know, I fell upon... I've, I tripped over Ode to the West Wind when I was a kid because I think because it was in a, a children's novel. A bit of it was quoted and it seemed amazing and then I went away and read it. Well, I was reading the novel for pleasure. I was reading, a, you know, I was reading, a, I was lying around in my bedroom or whatever or on the lawn or whatever and I read, you know, I was reading a book for pleasure. So I accessed it through pleasure. Had I accessed it through school, through the curriculum, through homework and chores and... I would have thought about it in the same way as I thought about quadratic equations, you know. <laughs> and that's a terrible truth. That is a terrible, that's a terrible paradox of education. Because, of course, then it all comes down to just be a brilliant teacher and it'll be all fine. <laughs> you know. I was very taken with what you were just saying. I think it's, I always remember reading years ago a review of, I think it was Andrew Motion's biography of Keats. And it might have been, I kind of want to say Helen Bendler in the LRB. And one of the things she said that didn't quite come out of the biography, and she, one of the things that she loves most about mm. Keats is just when you read yes. the poems, you feel how excited he must have been about reading Chapman's Homer or seeing a lock of Milton's hair. That often it's just quite an, an ordinary thing, or an ordinary... That enthusiasm, that kind of utter... And, it, and when I was reading it, I thought... Oh, that's it. I think that's why I like Keats. And I think when you were talking about Shelley, it's the same thing. It's just, oh, I can't, and I can't stop. Now it started. This poem could go on for bloody ever. But I don't know how you capture You're right. How do you capture that within either a podcast or, you know, how, how do we get that? It's, it's a very... It's very hard, isn't it? I'm sure you're right that reading aloud is one way because you can't but enter into the poem to some extent when you read aloud. Because it's your voice saying his voice, you know. I mean, there's something very embodied about it which is different from that kind of having to memorize and recite it aloud that we had to do at school and I think too I mean like the great Keats odes I mean they're really beautiful but also you can feel his mind moving you know he takes whatever he's going to take and contemplates and he just goes so far with the truth of it you know it doesn't just settle for you know this is a ceramic object I mean obviously about a meter high and you know he allows himself to notice what there really is to notice. And again, on the brink of perception, the raid on the inarticulate, the raid on the almost unperceived or imperceptible. And, of course, the poem allows the reader to participate in that. But bringing people to realise that that's what's going on and that's what they're participating in. They're not participating in incredibly elegantly formed lines, though they are also they are participating in this movement of thought. And 
that's really intimate and yeah I guess it's the kind of intimacy of the lyric tradition I mean that's one of the things about the lyric tradition isn't it I mean one of the things that I always you know say when I'm going to primary schools about I say it in various ways but you know about poems is that you know poems poems show how disobedient they are I mean even on the page they don't go all the way across the page you know they are a genre which obviously I don't say in primary school you know which advertises its own unreliability own lack of omniscience its own lack of scientific technical um faithfulness to the world and of course through that they acquire more faithfulness because you know if you go for what you really think and feel you much more evoke the thing and sometimes it's not a thing yes I always like the the idea that with poems you can you know they're often I mean Keats scribbled them in textbooks you know as you say Shelley's sitting watching Byron dash off poem after poem in 1816 and struggling to write but then sitting looking up at Mont Blanc starts thinking about all these these sorts of things or mm. seeing things that you're not seeing it's yes. kind of it's an it's amazing as you say thought process it to is, get into I, I I want to see what's not there and mm. there's a bit of it which feels like madness and there's a bit of it which just as you say you're seeing you're seeing a, tr- a truth that... Um... Yes. I mean, when I'm teaching writing poetry, particularly writing poetry, you know, I am absolutely maddened. I mean, obviously, I don't say I'm maddened, but, you know, when people people say our oh, poem is just describing, it absolutely isn't. I mean, a poem is not a photograph of the world. I mean, if something's not transformed, it's not a poem. And transformation can be all kinds, you know. It can be cerebral, it can be musical, it can be... Um, in understanding, it can be all sorts of things. It can be into metaphor. But, you know, I think a good question to ask yourself as a poet is, do you believe this is adding something to the sum of things in the world? I mean, obviously, that would be a hubristic question, but if in your min- if you could think that it was in some absolutely minuscule way, like one pixel, as it were, in the, in the great picture of the world, you know, that's, it, it has some life, it does something in itself, then it's worth writing. But if you are just either trying to get your name in print or you're trying to record a thought of which you already know the answer, um, you know, the completion, or describe something. You know, I look up at the, the beam overhead. If I were to write a poem saying what the beam was like, the beam is there. The beam is doing beamness. You know, a poem should be doing poemness. I always tell a story about, you know, when I was an editor at Poetry Review and, you know, when the Boxing Day tsunami happened, you know, I got so many poems in the post bag explaining with the force of revelation that tsunamis are tragic and good people die. Well, that's not a poem. There's nothing original in that insight. You are not the first person to grieve for the children of the village who died. You know, everybody knows it's a tragedy. That's not a that's not insight. It's nothing. It doesn't add to the to the that's world. Probably why I've never written a poem. <laughs> I can't imagine what I would. I can't imagine what. <laughs> Good for you, yes. People who read poetry and don't write it. One thing, Fiona, actually, I did notice in uh, Stanza Five, which we've just been talking about, Shelley re- remembering this 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 youth of, um, I think, setting apparently setting his butler on fire with with various the the family butler. So there's, there's a phrase um, which is in line three of stanza five. While yet a boy, I sought for ghosts and sped through many a listening chamber, cave and ruin and starlight wood. Now, that did ring a bell because you very kindly sent me um, a proof of your of your new book, which 
is called Starlight Wood as a way to perhaps round out our conversation is just to talk a little bit about your your, your new book and what what does that phrase mean to you and and t- t- just t- and how does it feed into your into your new book and is Shelley is Shelley present Shelley is present yes and and he's also present as a ghost in a <laughs> in a, a chapter about Elizabeth Bat Browning and Robert Browning and did you want to see Shelley plain yeah, the, the half-line that goes on after is, with fearful steps pursuing hopes of high talk with the departed dead. And in a way, I've cheated because I've made that positive. Because my subtitle is Walking Back to the Romantic Countryside. Because I am, as you'll gather from our conversation, really interested in in a kind of impure reading of poems. That's to say, a reading of them as, as not not othering them as a kind of inert canon, which is unreachable. The dead white male problem, I think, sometimes has to do with unreachable, a sense of the canon as unreachable. It's a subsidiary problem, but it is a problem. Um, but as works written by real people in real circumstance, which is certainly revelatory for oneself as in one's own struggles to write poetry, because you you kind of put yourself in in the process of the poem becoming in a different way um, from the way that you do if you kind of are an admiring kind of passive, my passive youth, as as Shelley calls it in this poem. But, um, I mean, Starlight Wood is just a beautiful image, I think. You know, not starlit, but starlight. So that sense of trees with the canopy with either leaves or not depending on what your imagination is doing but the stars showing through them rather like a a Samuel Palmer uh, painting which is itself of course also a romantic image because Samuel Palmer was a romantic and that sense of that as very for me an image of the numinous imminent which um, this poem is, is searching for but also that sense of I wanted to walk towards, I wanted to walk through the British countryside, and which is, I think, mm. a site of, a radical site, a site where radical things are going on or need to be going on as, as our climate erupts around us, and which was, for the Romantics, also a, a radical site because mm. it was undergoing radical change um, with the enclosures, people being forced off the land and into becoming the working poor of the Industrial Revolution, the urban poor. But also it was a place where they went to be radical because it was cheaper, it was safe from observation, they could set up ideal communities. I mean, most of, you know, not obviously people like William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft stayed in London and did their work there, but for the poets and artists, there's a lot of going out into the countryside to do their practice. And they are not doing it because they think the countryside is sweet and attractive and chocolate boxy in a way that it has become in British discourse today um, and including in the political discourse and discourse around policy, Mm. which is, I think, one of the reasons our relationship with the countryside is so screwed up. And where did we get that from? We got that from the notion of the picturesque, which is a romantic notion. So we have misappropriated the romantic countryside and made it into this sweet wallpaper, set of cliches, you know, the hay wane, I wandered lonely as a cloud, constables were the table mats at my grand's when I was growing up. You know, they, 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 they become invisible because they are just emptied out of meaning and resonance by their, their over-familiarity. Mm. And I wanted to get back to the living, radical moment of encounter between the romantics and countryside. So 
and I wanted to walk because of that sense of walking in their footsteps and metaphorically and literally also because slow travel is the way to be in environment and not to be in a tin box of any kind but to be there and walking also because I didn't want to be doing something more heroic I think there's a tradition in British writing about place which tends to be written by a white male forgive me who goes off and does something whether it's just walking in Scottish mountains but he kind of goes off and it's removed from life again but actually countryside is all the rural environment is all about dialectic we form it, we shaped it, we're still shaping it, and it shapes us. And so the kind of intimacy of the detail seems to me what we should be remembering. And the Romantics, of course, they did big idea stuff, like wanting to set up ideal communities, but they also did intimate daily stuff, like having particular diets and measuring and and bringing in kind of customs around, you know, how you frame a view. There's a kind of actual hands-on living engagedness in the romantic experience of that radical site the countryside I wanted to walk back to is it a, so that's why it's starlight wood is it a bit also I mean it sounds a bit that, that idea of this will keep that keep saying I, I've got to go out and gain experience so he goes off walking around I mean for the most part the English Scottish little bit the Irish countryside and part of that is mm those extraordinary descriptions of um, seeing the lakes and the mountains, and, and the, but also chance meetings, meets the ex- equally extraordinary description of, 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 of weird ca- the old woman that's been carried in that in the sort of box. And he thinks, oh, for, for a life of her, of her sensations. <laughs> yes. All of it. So it's, 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 it can be the sublime, but it also can be just meeting different people, seeing how they dance or yes. don't dance in Scotland. So it was it's that sort of experience. Absolutely. Yes, that too, exactly. And, you know, why one shouldn't forget that in a sense that, you know, the Romantics brought back the idea, brought in the idea of recreational walking. I mean, they're walking at a time when, you know, it's really déclassé to walk. As someone like George Borrow points out, you know, even tinkers and so on have carts <laughs> and, and Roma communities, but... You know, they want to do these walking tours. They want to, you know, Wordsworth and his university friends, whatever. They want to they want to go out and have the experience. Mm. And that's part of their sense of engagement. It's not wallpaper. It is an engaged experience. Which artists and, and writers are you, are you looking at? Well, there are 10 walks, and I walked only in Britain, because that was the commission to think about British romanticism. Otherwise, just too vast, because obviously, actually, the vibe of the beating heart of it would be the European romanticism, the European landscape. <laughs> so, um, and the walks aren't necessarily in, you know, the Lake District and the Quantocks. They are in different parts of Britain, because I, I wanted to kind of bring the idea of, you know, romanticism, that quality of engagement. It's not just a historical thing. You, It's, it's happening... Sorry. It's happening... In the countryside now, the legacies or whatever, and you, and you can go out and and take and you will be taking that history with you when you go walk wherever. I also took ten activities: eating, settling, travelling, you know, speeding, measuring, um, and I did think I did base it on Rousseau's uh, Reveries of Solitary, the Solitary Walker, where. He's pretty solipsistic, actually. He's he's he he's a he has great passages on on walking and and the rural environment and how much it matters to him. But quite a lot of the time, he's chewing over you know past wrongs that have been done to him. So 
he's walking, but walking is something that happens outside the body, but also happens <laughs> in his head. And I've tried to do that too. So it's partly biography, partly writing about place, partly kind of cultural cultural history in a way. So um, I've got Constable and Dead and Vale. And, you know, the, the landscape's uninhabited or less inhabited because the enclosures are happening. There are no people. I've got Turner and Rain Steam Speed and Great Western Railway and then Elizabeth Bat Browning seeing those trains and Mendelssohn going to um, uh, Fingal's Cave and being terribly seasick, but how Mendelssohn went because of Scott and Ossian and how Ossian was a complete fake, but how that was really influential across Europe. And so when he was on a concert tour in London, he trekked up to Scotland to to see the sights, to see to see Scottishness, and he wanted to collect, again, the barefoot natives and their customs. I've got Percy Bysshe and Mary and Claire going up Mont Blanc, which obviously is not in Britain. I've got Edward Lear framing a view outside Thessaloniki and then how it's framed in different accounts at the time. I've got George Borrow. I've got Shelley again in the Elan Valley, which of course is now underwater. And he's sort of first struggles with the idea of the picturesque and is it something that we are contriving or is it something imminent? My favourite chapter probably is about Dart. It's about Shelley's vegetarianism and his language, the disgusted language, a language about... Um, meat-eating, which is really similar to kind of language about sexual disease and sexuality and it overlaps with Blake and and how we, Elizabeth Back Browning, when the Brownings are in Florence, they, they, they go to the Hopners, who were the consuls in Venice when the Shelley's daughter died and had to be buried there and so took the Shelley's in. And Mrs. Hopner, who was then 20 years before, was the wife, tempts Percy to eat some beef. Oh, just eat a little slice of beef, beef, Mr. Shelley. You are so thin. And it was quite flirtatious and charming. And she tells this to Elizabeth Barrett Browning and Robert 20 years later. Elizabeth writes about it to family back home, which is how we know. And how, you know, who's sitting in that chair now? And what about Mary? Was she offered any? Mary, who's just been lost her child. And then is that the origin of, and did you want, oh, did you want to see Shelley Plain? You know, that laugh again, because I think you think of Mrs. Hopner as laughing. And not saying it is, but, say, you know, there's that whole chain of... And then Elizabeth's own, you know, ill health and her um, not vegetarianism, but the opposite for her, you know, her life as an, sort of, as it were, an out romantic is much more experimental with lots of different things, Chianti and roasted thrushes and lots of things like that and being able to pick an orange from the tree. And so for her, it's voluptuousness, whereas for Shelley, it's it's the opposite. Is it, is it Robert Browning that writes the, has that little quotation about um, about Keats eating porridge? Yes, 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 exactly. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just thinking the, Bra- the, Bra- the Browning's obviously obsessed with Romantic eating, it's but you know that's sort of interesting. Well, yes, and, well, because they were there in Italy again. It's that same thing about embodiment, isn't it? You know, you suddenly, if you're going to live where your heroes lived, all sorts of things arise that would have been part of experience in a different way. Yeah, and in that narrative, I mean, I think it's very interesting that that idea that we we should go out now and experience, not necessarily in that uh, sort of heritagey or sort of fetishy way. You know, let's sit where where. Emily Dickinson, I am going to the Emily Dickinson house, which is, I think, the one house that absolutely you mm, Exactly. <laughs> this is the house that you can see because she never seems to sort of go too far away from it. Um, but So there's a different kind of experience you're asking, but is there something about 
and mm. walking in the footsteps. I guess it's it's sort of the Richard Holmes sort of idea that retracing those steps. I do remember going to to, to the the house in Rome for the first time, mm. you know, probably three decades ago now, and and slightly sort of bursting into tears. And recently reading Clive James actually walking up the steps when he was much older and, and very unwell, and pondering Keats, if only Keats had just lived a bit longer and got penicillin and things like this. There is something about sometimes putting your foot yeah. in these places, and it can be quite a literal thing about thinking about. Keats or Shelley but a bigger thing is which you're obviously trying to touch but does that happen for you do you do you can you lose yourself absolutely it does yes absolutely I mean I remember going to Keats on one year on Keats's death day I mean I hadn't realized it was until I sort of you know messaged someone back home and they said well you do realize what today's date is don't you and you know looking up that at that coffered ceiling with the blue and the roses which he would have looked up as he was Mm. dying I mean it's yeah it's very 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 moving and yeah if you fall for any of them, you can't but feel it. It does feel extraordinary to hopes of high talk with the departed dead. I mean, you do you do gain something from proximity. Actually, something slightly different. But um, after I'd written the Mary Shelley biography and come out and everything, and I got contacted by um, an art dealer, an antiques art dealer, who, long story short, had, had acquired a bust said to be of Mary Shelley um, by a, a Roman sculptor who, for whom she would have sat. I worked out the dates and it was highly likely. And he said, well, come and see it. And I went to see it. It was in a, one of those warehouses near Heathrow and you go into a viewing room and there it was on its pedestal. And I burst into tears because seeing her face, seeing the face of this, Seeing the face of this bust, I absolutely made sense to me of who Mary Shelley was. I was. Oh yes, of course. And it was extraordinary because I, I really did sort of fall for Mary Shelley. I just found her uh, an extraordinary person. Leaving aside Frankenstein and whatever an achievement it is, but just her personal qualities, her kind of literal mindedness, her slight geekiness, her idealism, her and the way some people thought of her as beautiful and others not. She doesn't seem quite straight nose, quite. Sort of like a classical profile in a way, not the opposite of a kind of simpering Claire Clermont. I mean, you know, you could see in it absolutely someone who wouldn't have known how to flirt. How I mean, obviously, I'm reading things into marble, you know, but it was just this absolute shock of actually like really meeting the person you've been thinking about for three years. I hope we can talk more about that. I got really into reading her diary actually a while back. Um, I love all the lists of all the books that she and Shelley have been reading. This sort of and then, and then I felt terribly sorry if I was reading about the you know the, the endless sort of speculation of what happened to Shelley's heart. And I thought Lee Hunt actually was unforgivable. Um, living with her, but living off her. The way all Shelley's hangers-on vilified her, and obviously it seems to me. You know, he was vilifying her behind her back. Oh, it's so awful. My wife doesn't understand me. It's the oldest, you know, line in the book. And they all fell for it. And that's, of course, why they were so hostile to her. They didn't see her as the keeper of the flame. It's just so awful. And that she just didn't get that. And she trusted Jane Williams. She kept trusting Jane Williams and, you know, even had a crush on Jane Williams. It's just, it's a vast, yeah. I have so much I could say about Mary Shelley, but something else thank you so it was it's such a pleasure to, to talk yeah to it's you. really great to meet you it's a really good conversation i really loved it so yeah let's do some more yeah fantastic and thanks so much
Thank you for listening to the Keat Shelley podcast. This podcast is hosted by James Kidd. The music is Androids Always Escape by Chris Zabriskie. Visit chriszabriskie.com. You can hear more episodes and also subscribe to the podcast by visiting our homepage, keatshelley.podbean.com. You can support the Keat Shelley House by becoming a friend of the Keat Shelley Memorial Association. Visit keatshelley.org and click support us.